Welcome to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast, a show where we discuss what's wrong with healthcare and talk with innovative companies disrupting the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we explore strategies to help employers lower healthcare costs and build a better health plan. Now here's your host, Michael Maneri. Welcome back, folks. A quick note about today's show before we get started. So to date, this podcast has been about discussing the dysfunction in our healthcare system and interviewing vendors in the marketplace who are innovating to help employers lower their healthcare costs. But we're going to take a turn today and do something a little bit different. Today is about awareness. We're going to talk about a problem that is growing in our country, in our communities, and in the companies that we work in day in and day out. This episode is part one in a two-part series about the opioid crisis, and we're going to talk about this epidemic with someone who is all too familiar with it. Hope you enjoy it. All right. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Harry Nelson. Harry, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Michael. Thanks for having me on. You bet. You bet. So uh, to get us started, Harry, I'm going to read a brief bio about you so our audience has a little bit of context about who they're listening to, and then we'll jump into the interview. Sound good? Perfect. So Harry Nelson is America's number one healthcare lawyer and a leading expert on our healthcare future. He's passionate about making sense of our complex healthcare issues, navigating the way forward for healthcare organizations, government, employers, investors, and the public. Healthcare organizations and government regulators turned in for guidance on complex issues ranging from patient safety and prescribing and treating pain, addiction treatment, digital health, cannabis, and more. His latest book, The United States of Opioids, A Prescription for Liberating a Nation in Pain, shares the story of Harry's deep dive into the opioid crisis response, beginning with calls from Michael Jackson's doctors after his overdose death. Harry was consultant on one celebrity overdose after another, eventually becoming known around the country as an expert in the crisis response and organizational turnarounds after rashes of overdoses and suicides in addiction treatment programs. His expertise in thought leadership has led federal and state regulators and policymakers to call on Harry for input on issues related to the opioid crisis, as well as other emerging healthcare challenges. In addition to founding Nelson Hardeman, the largest healthcare life sciences law firm in LA, he also chairs the board of Behavioral Health Association of Providers, an organization with 30,000 subscribers that works with government, nonprofit organizations, and the healthcare industry to develop standards to improve the quality and safety of behavioral health. All right. Is that about capture you? Anything else? <laughs> I think that was a pretty good summary. I, I don't know. I'll try to live up to that. All right. Sounds good. So, Harry, you are a healthcare attorney, not the typical person we, we have on the show, but you're about to release a book on the opioid crisis, which I believe is under the radar of a lot of people. And I think there's a lot of ignorance about about this problem, especially from an employer standpoint. So uh, I'm really excited to, to get your perspective here and also some education on this. The name of the book, The United States of Opioids, A Prescription for Liberating a Nation in Pain. Before we dive into the content of this book, what inspired you to, to write it in the first place? It's definitely not a standard thing for uh, healthcare regulatory lawyers like me to write books about what should actually be happening in healthcare. But what was happening for me personally was that the more involved I got in the different faces of this crisis, dealing with crisis response after overdoses and suicides, dealing with the just massive number of people struggling with addiction, unable to get help, the people in chronic pain, all of it, it just, it became kind of an obsession for me. And I found that I I was not content 
to just do what I what lawyers always do, which is wait for clients to come with problems and give advice. I felt like it was important to start getting a message out there. And it was what led me to get involved in starting the Behavioral Health Association providers to disseminate education and advocacy materials to try and change things. But ultimately, I found that I actually started off trying to write a different book, a follow-up on the, sort of the future of U.S. health policy. And I couldn't take my mind off of trying to do something about the number of people dropping dead, the number of people just unable to get relief. And I felt like it was important to add one more perspective that hopefully helps make sense of the issues. I've read the book. And so I'm, I'm glad you did. I think I'm, I'm definitely a more educated person after having gone through it. But for our audience out there, let's just start with the basics. What type of drugs fall under the umbrella of opioids and why are they so dangerous in the first place? Opioids have a fascinating history as a drug category. They, they actually include, when you use the word opioids, you're including both natural opiates from the opium poppy plant and then all of the derivations, things like both legal and illegal, things like morphine and heroin, which are essentially derived from the plant by processing it with other chemicals. And then these purely synthetic forms, again, both legal prescribed and illegal things like fentanyl. We see like a whole range of both prescription medications and illegal drugs that have been with us. Uh, they've been with humanity for at least 5,000 years. They, they're one of the oldest medications out there, and they've served a lot of valuable purposes over the years. They were the main way of stopping diarrhea. They, they, they do address pain. They help, they've led people to sleep better, have an easier death. The problem is that they are massively addictive. Mm. And so the problem that we've encountered in the last 20 years in America is that our pharmaceutical companies realized a massive opportunity to make profits by promoting them. And that spurred uh, what, what had been an existing problem already with opioid addiction into one of the fastest growing killers in the country, both accidental and uh, suicidal, and just has, has sort of grossly expanded the problems of overdose deaths and addiction as a result of that. So we're trying to, we're trying to get out of the immediate problems of heavy numbers of overdose deaths. We had over 50 a thousand Americans die of an opioid overdose last year across wow. all the both prescription and illegal categories of mm -hmm. opioids, and another at least 12 million Americans with uh, with an opioid-specific addiction, among all the other many other addictions. And so we're trying to figure out how to do something about that because the numbers just keep getting worse and worse year after year. And one of the things that was really surprising to me in the book was that this is America's second opioid crisis. Do you want to talk about the, the first crisis and kind of how it was, how it developed and how it was addressed? This was one of the things that I, I learned as I was putting, doing research for this book to provide some context. I, you know, it was an education for me. So you go back into the 1700s and 1800s, opioids were one of our main forms of medication back then. Back then, it was opium powder given to soldiers in the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. It was things like laudanum, where you take brandy and mix it with opium or other alcohol. And then in the, in the late 1890s, when we have syringe needles, for the first time, you get morphine and heroin. Heroin actually, as a, uh, even though we think of it as a street drug, it was actually a Bayer. The German uh, pharmaceutical was one of their first major over-the-counter drugs in the, in the market. So what started to happen in the, in the late 1800s and early 1900s was there was not just American, but uh, international awareness that opioid addiction was a huge problem. You had the 
opium wars fought between Britain and China uh, to basically force China to accept importation of British opioids that were keeping roughly at one point a quarter of the Chinese male population addicted. And so what happens around 1908 is that the U.S. signs on to a law called the Harrison Act, which puts high, high taxes on heroin and on other opioids to try and stop the consumption of them. And what happened was you had a, you had a huge number, hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S. who were addicted to one kind of opioid or another, and they were depending until that time on getting them from their doctors. And so even after the government made them illegal, people continued to get opioids. They just got them as a prescription for doctors. And, and the rationale that doctors had was that they were prescribing to keep people maintained so they didn't have to go through the discomfort of withdrawal. And so the government was unsatisfied with the fact that opioids were still flowing freely just under this cover of being prescribed. And so they, this crackdown began in the 19-teens where doctors were, there would be undercover agents going into doctor's offices and then arresting doctors, charging doctors. And what blew me away was, as a lawyer, is we had, we had four Supreme Court cases between 1914 and 1921, four times that the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on this issue, originally siding with doctors and saying doctors could prescribe for people if they were addicted to keep them from withdrawal, then flipping the other way and saying, no, this wasn't legitimate medicine, then finally saying this is an issue for the states. Um, and in the meantime, we had a whole generation of doctors who were really scarred by the experience of being terrorized by the government and, and unsure what to do. I think when you look at our current opioid crisis, you can very much see the reverberations of everything that happened 100 years ago. You know, we have this very conflicted attitude about treating addiction, about treating pain, about what doctors' roles are in this process. And I think mm -hmm. if, I, I really think that I put that in the book because I think that when you add that layer of context, it sort of explains this, this pendulum swing that we have in this country in our attitudes towards addiction and pain. And it also helps us kind of figure out that, that there's a tension here that we're going to need to be paying attention to to find some middle ground. That's exactly what it was. It was good context to see that this is something that we had dealt with in the past. We made an attempt to deal with it, but then it came back. So, so let's fast forward to the 80s or 90s, you know, when it kind of reared its ugly head again. So how did that second leg of the crisis begin? And then why do you think it took so long to get on a national radar? This is my theory. I don't have a, I can't prove this, but my, my whole theory is that basically the generation of doctors who were around in the 20s and even the, you know, the people who were trained by the, the, the doctors in the 20s and 30s, that whole generation basically had been scared out of uh, prescribing for opioids and really scared away from treating for pain, which is what a lot of the opioid prescribing was for. So it's finally, by the time you get to the late 70s, the 80s, you have doctors who don't remember that earlier period. And we start hearing a lot about how pain is being undertreated. And you see the formation of medical societies for the first time that are focused on treating pain and a whole movement of both patients dealing with chronic pain and doctors dealing with it. By the way, one of the interesting things that I think ties into this is you see a rise in complaints of chronic pain and disorders, all these, these various disease states that involve serious pain emerging and getting worse and worse. So by the late 80s and early 90s, you have a consensus that we've got to treat pain. We started talking about pain as a fifth vital sign, essentially saying that measuring a patient's pain and managing it was as important as managing their blood pressure and their breathing rate. And so that culminated in the Joint Commission, which certifies hospitals 
requiring hospitals to survey patients on their pain as a condition of being certified for Medicare. So basically what happened was this, this whole movement about how we treat pain led to more and more focus on making sure patients were satisfied. And so inevitably, when you ask patients about their pain, we all inevitably as human beings have a positivity bias and we, nobody says, or very few people say uh, their pain is a, uh, on a scale of one to 10 is a one or a two. I, I was talking to a doctor yesterday and she said to me, she's a pediatrician, she said, kids are the only people uh, she knows who are sitting there clearly miserable after having an appendix out will sit there and, and grimace, you know, that they're completely fine. Adults, not so much. We asked for the medication. <laughs> so what happened was it started being given out and it took a long time for us to see the data moving that the numbers, the death rates were going up. It really is only in the early 2000s that we first begin to see reports of both overdose death, death rates, and addiction, just generally opioid dependency, getting any attention at all. And the government didn't really start to crack down on physician prescribing until the later 2005, 2007. By 2008, the word is kind of out on the street for physicians that the DEA and the medical boards in the various states are not going to put up with loose prescribing anymore. But it just took a long time, partly because we had the problem was getting worse and worse and it wasn't showing up in the data. And one of the, the lessons of this, this whole experience has been that we have, don't have good data analytics. We hadn't been tracking and looking for overdoses in particular, and we weren't, we weren't attuned to the problem of dependency. And so we're, we're not only now sort of updating our data collection infrastructure to, to capture that data. That leads to my next question, which is, I think the data is a little bit better now. So how big of a problem is this right now in, in our country? Can we quantify it? The last year we have data for sitting on this call is uh, 2017. There were, we had 49,000 opioid deaths across all categories of opioids. When you look at the total number of deaths, by the way, that relating to all drugs, the number went up to 72,000, and that's not including alcohol, which is another 80,000, 90,000 deaths. But the opioid-specific number of deaths is, is about two-thirds of all drug deaths. And then the addiction problem, opioids are also about two-thirds of all substance use disorders. And so that's the, that's the 12 million number out of a total of 20 million addictions, substance use disorders. And then the last number that I think is important to track is the courts of chronic pain, because that's the sort of other side of the, of the coin here of people who are not getting the medicine they need and are suffering in pain. And, we, and 50 million Americans, one in five adults, reported that it was a significant issue in their lives in the last six months. 20 million of those people said that in the last six months, their work or life activity has been impaired most or, or limited most or all day by virtue of chronic pain. So those are the numbers that, that make me think this is uh, an unprecedented public health problem in America. I think it's a natural question to think, how did we get here and who's to blame? And, and you kind of talked about how we got here. But one of my takeaways from reading your book is that there's no one person or entity to, to point a finger at. In, in many ways, it's kind of a self-inflicted crisis and there's plenty of blame to share and a number of different villains. Do you want to talk about some of the key contributors to the problem? Yeah. So, so this is a place where I'm a little bit in a, uh, of a different voice than what, a lot of what's out there in the media right now. Most of the media coverage until now has been focusing on big pharma, on Purdue Pharmaceuticals, the manufacturers of OxyContin as a true villain and other pharm pharmaceuticals. There's a, tr a criminal trial going on right now for uh, the, the CEO of Subsys, which was a, a fentanyl sublingual spray. 
So there's a lot of, there certainly is a lot of blame to be placed at the feet of the, of the drug companies that aggressively marketed opioids beginning in the, in the late 90s. Uh, but I, my perspective is that that's only a small part of the problem. The problem is really structural and systemic. One of the things I talk about in the book is that we really have to look at our government failure, both in terms of the FDA in policing drug manufacturers and the DEA, which basically terrorized physicians to get them to stop prescribing while it was absolutely ignoring the response from drug dealers to start importing black tar heroin and fentanyl in unprecedented numbers and also stifling research on alternatives to opioids. Ultimately, we can thank the government for that, uh, those pain surveys and the, the official uh, status of pain as a fifth vital sign. So I, I really think that we have to look at the government. With regard to physicians, a lot of people sort of have, there's also been a lot of negative coverage of physicians being sloppy. I think we need to look at our medical schools and our medical education system and, and, and acknowledge that doctors haven't been trained on it, haven't been trained on prescribing for addiction or for pain or treating pain with non-pharmacologic options. And we need to look at the whole new set of standards that need to be developed, right? We're starting to look at pharmacies as a, po a point of safeguard in this process. And for me, the biggest element that we never talk about is the insurance companies yes. and the role of payers. I wanted you to talk about that because my audience here is an audience of employers, brokers, consultants who represent payers who are the employers, but ultimately the insurance companies are the intermediary, right? And they're the ones paying providers. So I thought that was such an interesting insight in the book and would love for you to, to expand on that. Yeah. So I'll share with you a story. I, you know, I was talking to a senior executive and I won't say which health plan because what he said to me was quite shocking. And I think it's really telling about the attitudes in the health plans. He said, Harry, the challenge that we're having as a payer is figuring out whether we're going to be viewed as a victim or a perpetrator in the opioid crisis. What he meant was that there's a level on which the insurance industry can look at itself and say, we were deluded by you know these doctors who are prescribing because the drug companies pressured them and we paid for all of this bad care. Think of how much we would have saved and how much more efficiently we could have operated if we hadn't had to pay for it. But the other side of the coin is that it was insurance companies that were enabling troubling amounts of prescribing that was leading to addiction Insurance companies do such a good job of policing claims when their own financial risk is on the line, uh, but they did not seem to lift a finger to stop the prescribing over pills. And one of the theories that's out there, and I'm a subscriber, is that, that insurance companies favor pharmaceutical solutions because it's a lot more expensive and a lot more complicated to provide non-pharmacologic support. So whether that means giving people access to things like acupuncture and chiropractic and physical therapy and neurofeedback. There's all kinds of other ways to treat pain that would help people, but insurance companies like pills. Pills are easy, they're relatively cheap, they can be managed efficiently. And so I personally think that we need to look at the role of insurance companies and put pressure on our insurance companies to do better in providing access to treatment for addiction, and treatment for pain. The example in, in the book, and I, I have it bookmarked here, is had to do with Medicare for a very painful condition. There was an alternative therapy. I think it was uh, IVIG, kind of an infusion. Yeah, I, was, this is, I, was, I was very involved in this fight. This is still an ongoing fight, by the way, but the work on intravenous immunoglobulin, IVIG, 
really opened my eyes to of what a, a, a troubling place our, our insurance system can have. Because when you, if you are somebody who gets a, one of these severe neuropathies, like for example, patients who are waking up in the middle of the night with just absolute uh, burning sensation, extreme pain in their arms and legs, the only treatment that allowed them to have a functional life was this infusion therapy, IVIG. And they needed it every five weeks or so. And it's not an inexpensive therapy, but the alternative was to just, you know, give them tons of opioids that were much, much cheaper, but kept them basically in bed 16 hours a day. And so the doctors who I was working with were getting denials of coverage and we put together a huge case. We had video depositions because a lot of the patients couldn't make it to court. We had some come in, the ones who could get there and walk into court came and testified. And I had the judge literally in tears over the denial of care to uh, these patients. And we're still arguing about whether this should be covered. And it, it, it's, there's, a, there's a complicated financial issue, of, but, but it, there's a fundamental human suffering issue when you deny people access to alternative medications for pain. The insightful part is, you know, look, uh, it may be cheaper, but in the long run, if it causes suffering addiction, are we making the right choice? And I think that's, that's the key question that needs to be asked. Yeah, I agree with you. I, and I think we ought to be looking at how do we bring down costs on these, on these different therapies uh, and make them more affordable, but, but denying access to care is just not a recipe that's good for, good for anyone. It's, it's how we got into this crisis. What's the national government response to this issue so far? This is actually an issue where we've gotten bipartisan support for a few interventions. The big things that you, uh, you'll, you see in the, both in the reports and in the funding through the two big bipartisan bills that, went, that, uh, that passed uh, that have been things like Narcan, spreading the access to the overdose reversal drug, making that available not only in healthcare facilities, but with first responders, mm-hmm. getting it into the hands of patients and funding that. We've seen a big push for another pill, uh, medication-assisted treatment, mostly in the form of buprenorphine, things like Suboxone, to, um, to treat addiction and, and, and get more people treated with Suboxone. We've seen a call for early intervention throughout at schools beginning in, in middle schools and a push for new therapeutic devices as alternatives to opioids, both medical devices and, and drugs. And, you know, those have been some of the, the primary responses, the data analytics improvement that I mentioned, and increasing access to addiction treatment. That's been a huge push, right? One of the most important parts of the whole story around the Affordable Care Act for me was that nine Republican senators joined the Democrats to oppose the rollback of Medicaid that some of the Republican Party had wanted. And there, the, the Republicans like Rob Portman uh, from Ohio and uh, Shelley Caputo in uh, West Virginia, who did, did so, justified it in terms of opioid crisis response. And so what we've seen is that all the states are acknowledging a massive problem of dealing with people suffering from addiction on the ground and the need to expand Medicaid. So that's been a huge part of the solution. So those have been the kind of official government responses that have been more or less unified. But I would assume based on, you know, what I read in the book, but you're of the opinion that a government solution on this isn't going to be enough. Yeah, that, that's kind of my, my overall point of the book is, um, you know, I think all of those things are good policy and they're all the right things to do, but they aren't. If we're, if we're asking ourselves, how are we going to move the needle on the number of people who are dying and the number of people who are addicted and suffering, I think we need to look beyond healthcare. I don't think that that is a problem that healthcare can solve. One of the things that was most disturbing to me that I discovered in my research was a, and this is a fairly recent uh, September 2018 
study from the University of Pittsburgh that showed a 40-year rising exponential curve of uh, drug overdose deaths across all drugs. And that goes back to the late 70s, early 80s. And what it means is that it's not the problem is not opioid specific, which is what all of these government responses are. The problem is a deeper underlying social crisis where you see just rising rates of anxiety, stress, isolation, disconnection across our society that are showing up. The statistics are worse among the young. There's a culture in this country right now, which is driving a, not just a culture, but there's, there are a set of problems that are driving a much worse suicide crisis and just an, a level of disconnection that's leading people to turn to drugs and, and leading to accidental deaths. And that we're not going to solve that problem within healthcare or any government solution. To me, that's something that requires public awareness at a grassroots level. That's something that we need to take on in our own lives, in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces, not just think of as a healthcare problem, but really as a, a, a societal challenge that everybody needs to be part of addressing. I agree with that. And, and just from a, a public awareness you know, campaign, I, I, I literally 45 minutes ago got off the phone with a client and I brought this up, the opioid crisis, and, and asked them if they were aware of it and how it might you know, impact them as an employer. And to be honest, the answer was no. And so we talked about it. We did a little education. But I do think this is under the radar for a lot of people. Let's bring it back to the employer for a second, right? If I'm a business leader, I'm a CEO, CFO, I'm you know, a VP of HR, and I'm listening to this, I might be saying to myself, well, I don't see any of my employees overdosing, so I don't think we have a problem. What would your response be to that person? So, I mean, my response is that the, if you start looking a little more broadly, both at the continuum of substance use disorders, that is people who are keeping their, holding down their job, but even though they're still using substances to manage their, to self-medicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you start looking at the underlying mental health and emotional pieces of the level of stress in the workforce, the level of anxiety, the disconnection, these are very real problems. And one of the things I say in the book is that I think, I think many of us live in a state of shame about bringing them to our coworkers, let alone to our bosses and into our workplace. And so people, there's, I think if employers took a hard look, they would see that this problem is, is, is right there. It's just that people are afraid and ashamed to bring it up. That's before we even touch one step removed what's going on in people's families and other people who employers are covering on their health plans. But I, you know, my big argument is that we just need a, we need a real culture change. We spend a lot of time in workplace wellness these days talking about weight reduction, smoking cessation. There are a number of companies that have these employer assisted programs, but I, you know, the data that I see shows less than 5% of all people who need help are willing to turn to an, uh, an, an, an EAP program, even if they have one. And so I think we just need to have a real culture change in the workplace that says to people, this is a safe place to share what you're dealing with. We can support each other because the irony of, of people being so alone with these issues is that part of the solution is just the connection itself, right? Is being seen and being able to talk to people. And that's not the, the full answer for everybody, but that, that would take us a huge step forward on this whole um, hidden problem. You know, I often talk about human capital. We have moved away from an industrial economy to more of a human capital economy. And if you're an employer, you know, your people are your biggest asset. 
I think if you can get to the point where you can acknowledge that this is an issue and all the stats that you're talking about as far as behavioral health issues popping up, especially within the millennial segment of the population, but also within the Xers and the boomers, it's there. We are hearing about it more and more. I almost feel like every other conversation with clients is about stress management and how to deal with that within the population. So this is part of that, whether or not maybe people realize it or not. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on to put this out there and and really educate people on on this issue, because I just, I I don't don't think there's awareness. One of the great things about putting this uh, book out there has been a lot of, I've had a lot of people coming to me with related ideas. and, and, And one that I think is important for employers that I wanted to share came from a friend of mine, a guy named Brian Portnoy, who wrote a book called The Geometry of Wealth. And and what he points out in his book is he says, you know, money is not the driver of human happiness beyond the minimal level of of survival. And so as employers, and I'm guilty of this, we often are, we obsess over, you know, are we compensating people well enough to retain them and keep them happy? And, And what he says in his book is that there's really four sources of human happiness, and those are all inextricably tied to the workforce. They are four C's, connection, control, context, and competency. And what he says is what makes us as people happy is we connect when we connect with other people, when we uh, competency is when we feel good, when we feel we have something to add, our jobs lead to our happiness. Context, meaning having a sense of purpose in what we're doing, uh, that, that leads us to being happy. And control, feeling like we actually have a voice, right? So employers have an enormous ability to drive workforce wellness simply by thinking, not thinking beyond just the financial into how do you create a workplace where people feel connected, feel mm-hmm. recognized for doing well in what they're doing, feel a sense of purpose, and feel like they have a voice? Uh, those are, it's such a powerful place to effectuate change. And we're not going to solve the opioid crisis in its, its completeness in the workplace, but we can really, I believe, begin to really begin to make a difference and empower people to go out, uh, out of their workplaces and do some of this work in the rest of their lives. You know, the other things that, you know, employers can do is, is really start to think about when you think about wellness, expand your horizons, you know, you have to think about behavioral health, stress management and incorporating resources for people and marketing those resources. So people know if they need help with someone, there's a place to go. Yeah, hundred percent making the resources available. And I would say also just, you know, I think it's important for people in leadership roles to be vulnerable and, and actually use those resources. And, and, and I think that creating a, creating a culture where, company, where people feel safe about using the resources is critical to making sure that they're actually getting implemented and used. So Harry, this has been a, a great discussion on the opioid crisis and, and uh, the content in your book. If there was one question that I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? I mean, one of the things, I, I guess the question of what, what should people on this call, what, should, is there anything that they can do in their lives? That's, that's a question that I, I, I hope people are asking, right? For me, the most frustrating thing watching the coverage, because you can't go more than a day without seeing a major media story on the opioid crisis, is what can I do about it, right? Getting out of that mode of, how do I get out of that mode of just being a passive observer? And what I would say to that is, you know, I think the first step is awareness, is getting more aware, not just of the, of the pieces that the media is showing, but of all these issues that you and I have been talking about, about how people can proactively make changes, how we can become agents of, of intervention and prevention in the lives of people around us. No one person or, or one part of our system is going to solve this crisis, but uh, it's a project that we should all be trying to figure out how we can 
be part of. So I hope that's helpful. That's I, and I'm grateful to you for uh, for having me on today, and also for the work that you're doing to get people to rethink healthcare and healthcare in the workplace. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. So this is a great book. Where can people find it? Where can they learn more about you, the book, the opioid crisis? The book is on Amazon, uh, the United States of Opioids Prescription for Liberating a Nation in Pain. It's going to be in uh, Barnes and Noble and a number of other bookstores. I think the airport bookstores, Hudson's, are going to start carrying it next month. If people want to see more about my work, my personal website is harrynelson.com. has a lot about the book. We have an assessment tool there on the website that lets people assess their readiness for the opioid crisis response. I also have a site called notanotherstat.com, which is uh, really about some of the, the, the broader efforts we're making to change policy and create resources. Great. And your firm's name is Nelson Hardiman as well. Oh, sorry. And my law firm is uh, Nelson Hardiman, uh, nelsonhardiman.com. Uh, yeah, so I, uh, you can find me there as well. And I'm always happy to uh, try and answer uh, questions people have about uh, uh, healthcare-specific problems. Excellent. And so I would be remiss if I didn't mention that all proceeds from the sale of this book go to support a nonprofit that uh, is involved in the opioid crisis. Do you want to you know, spend a minute just talking about that nonprofit? Sure. So we, it's actually, a, a, we're supporting a number of organizations. Uh, we've been working closely with an organization called Young People in Recovery, focusing on resources for families and young people, because that's such a critical piece of this puzzle. Some of the funds are going to the National Association of Recovery Residences, which is uh, an outstanding organization we've been working with to address the housing piece of recovery. We're working also through the Behavioral Health Providers Foundation, an organization I was involved in creating that's putting out resources on workplace wellness, a lot of resources on incorporating counseling and psychosocial community into uh, medication-assisted treatment, and just doing work to develop more standards and protocols for safer, more effective treatment. Awesome. Great. So to our listeners, I definitely recommend uh, everyone check out this book, if only to educate yourself so you can be better equipped to protect yourself, your family, and your friends from the dangers of, of opioid addiction and abuse. Harry, on behalf of our listeners, I want to thank you for, for taking time out of your schedule to join us. It's been a great, informative discussion. Thanks so much for having me on. Really a pleasure. All right. And to our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. And with that, we'll sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to Harry's personal and company websites, as well as a link to Amazon where you can purchase his book. Lastly, if you're enjoying the content on the show, please take five seconds today, open up the podcast app on your phone, go to our show's page, scroll down to the bottom of the page and let us know what you think with the review. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.